it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. I am back. So, uh, so glad to be here. Back from Australia. So I've been a perspective on what the other side of the world is thinking about. Most of the same stuff that we're thinking about. I appreciate you being here this hour. We're going to be joined by uh, Senator, and he's also a doctor, Roger Marshall. And Nicolee Ambrose uh, from Maryland is going to be a change to the top of the RNC. Ronald McDaniel stepping down this week uh, at, at a time in which it just shows the chaos and the, the need for raising a rapid amount of money. And it looks like Donald Trump is basically going to absorb it, very similar to how Hillary Clinton did uh, when the disaster happened when she was running in 2015. We'll talk to Senator Marshall about that and more. But right now, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This is time sensitive. It's it's existential. I just got back from Ukraine. What our bill does is it combines border security with this foreign aid, both existential. And we are forcing this bill to the floor to make sure that everybody acts. There you go. And that is uh, Brian Fitzpatrick. Find a way. That's what Republicans need to do to fund the Ukraine war and start debating Congressman Fitzpatrick's bipartisan border bill and Ukrainian bipartisan bill. Uh, Plus, get the border handled. The administration is already jumping off Israel's support, but Republicans do not budge, please. Number two. U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement says Ibarra, a Venezuelan citizen, unlawfully entered the country near El Paso, Texas in September 2022. He was detained and then released by Border Protection. In September 2023, ICE says Ibarra was arrested in New York City for allegedly endangering a child. Killers. That's what Venezuela has been sending across our border. And all 50 states is paying the price. Major cities in chaos. And the middle of both, both are experiencing the effects of President Biden's self-made border catastrophe. Can anything but Donald Trump winning the election fix this? Number one. If you look at the numbers, Joe Biden won by 150,000 votes in Michigan. There are 200,000 Muslim or Arab American voters in Michigan. If he alienates all of them, Michigan is gone for him. 2024, Michigan primary on deck. And more is at stake for President Biden than Nikki Haley or President Trump as we look at the state of the race with Super Tuesday a few weeks away and Michigan 24 hours away and three court cases straight ahead. Let's bring in uh, Senator and Dr. Roger Marshall. Senator, great to see you. Brian, great to be with you. Uh, First off, on uh, what's going to be happening now on Michigan, there's no doubt about it tomorrow. Are you surprised the, uh, the uprising against President Biden in Michigan for support of Israel? I'm not. But I think what people are missing is the bigger picture are the union workers in Michigan, 600,000 union workers in Michigan that are upset with Joe Biden looking for a place to land as well. Because of the electric car movement? You got it. So it takes one third less workers to build electric cars than it does the internal combustion engine as well. So 200,000 Palestinians there, but the 600,000 plus their spouses, their cousins, everyone's connected to the car industry in in Michigan as well. So I'm focused on making sure that the Republicans are pro-union as well. Right, Uh, which is interesting because if you just say the American consumer is going for the electric car, that's the way it is. It's not true. It's the subsidies this administration is providing using taxpayer dollars to shove it down everyone's throats. And for the most part, Americans are giving it the Heisman. Exactly. So 
Um, let Marcus figure this out, not the government. The government's made a horrible choice here. They're $20,000 more on average. Uh, the, the people that are selling them can't get rid of them. The rental cars can't rent them. It's not going to work, at least not yet. All right, so let's talk about what's happening at the southern border. We've heard about the horrific murder of that Georgia college student, just wanted to go for a jog during the day. And it turns out it's a Venezuelan who came here illegally with a sham marriage, got to New York City, got in trouble already for bring, bring, driving a kid around on a moped without a helmet, Divorces his wife or just leaves his wife, goes to Georgia, joins his brother, and sees a woman jogging, kills her. You got it. You know, this is horrible. Um, a nursing student, my wife a nurse, uh, this lady had a wonderful life in front of her. And joining her today are 300 Americans dying from fentanyl poisoning. I want to point out that this uh, person is one of 200,000 Venezuelans. Lake and Riley. One of you, know, Lake, Lake and Riley, got, you know, God rest her soul and her, her family. But this Venezuelan is one of 200,000 Venezuelans that Joe Biden has paroled illegally. 200,000 Venezuelans in this country. And now Venezuela thumbing her nose at us and won't take anybody back. Yeah. Uh, they had a special provision in 2022 in September. New parole system. If you're from Venezuela, Haiti, Cuba, or Nicaragua, you get to stay. Horrible governments. You shouldn't be forced to go back there. How's that working out? And didn't he have a reapproachment with Venezuela to get them to pump their dirty oil because he refused to pump it here? And in return, they give us their criminals. Yeah, one more example of Joe Biden's incompetence when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, he takes the sanctions off of them for in hopes of having some type of a legal election process, which still hasn't happened. And in turn, they give us 200000 of how many of these are criminals. We don't know. But if you want to know why the price of oil is not going through the roof, he let Iran sell and he let Venezuela pump. And that has a lot to do with all this. Yeah, and then you add to it that Iran has 500 ghost ships that are smuggling oil from Russia to China and India as well. And, and here, here we are today. So we also have this, uh, Chinese nationals. Through San Diego alone, we have 24,000 Chinese national encounters. In how many we deported in uh, fiscal year 2023? 288. This is just through San Diego. In the past, it's been a few hundred. What's going on here? Well, look, I think there's probably at least 40,000 Chinese nationals that we know that have come into the country illegally. Um, what we're going to see is an explosion of human trafficking. Just talking to my people, the boots on the ground back home, the the KBI agents, Kansas Bureau of Investigation agents, the ICE agents back home, we're seeing an explosion of human trafficking, and I think we're going to find these Chinese nationals behind it. So they're coming in with roller bags. They're not coming through the Darien Gap. They're somehow, it looks like they're getting dropped off in Mexico. Some of them are military-age males, uh, and we don't, we used to question them for days as long as it took. Now you're not allowed to ask them certain questions. You've got to pass them through in hours. Why is it to our advantage to pass them through in hours? Why are you curious about why they're here and this administration doesn't seem to be? Well, this is part of the Chinese story. You know, they're attacking us on the air, land, and sea. Uh, they're bringing, you know, they, we pump in counterfeits through the northern border. Uh, they're stealing our intellectual property. Um, they're buying property next to uh, military bases. All those things are happening here. Um, you know, it is a huge concern for Americans. It should be. This is our, our number one long-term national security threat besides our national debt. So you don't have the answer to what they're doing here? Of course not. But we sent letters. Because we know it's a horrible government. It's a hard place to live. Yeah, the government has no idea who they are or where they are. We, and in addition to the ones we've known that have come into the country, how many uh, gotaways are there that have not been yeah. been uh, 
been in the, assessed to see what their background is. So, you know, there's a story with Peter uh, Schweitzer's book. He's always ahead of the curve. And he talks about the flood of fentanyl is China on every layer. They not only have the precursors to fentanyl, they're packaging it. They have people in places like Michigan and Vermont and New Hampshire who are sending it out. They know it's, it's part of their process, their attempt to kill us. Right. So, so these uh, Chinese organized crime make the precursors. They smuggle the precursors into Mexico. They work with the cartel to get them into our country. You're going to see human trafficking springing up next to the drug trafficking. And then on the back end of this, uh, these Chinese nationals are then converting this money to cryptocurrency and then sending it back to China. The CCP intimately entwined in all this process. So, Senator, uh, do you have a pr- approach besides asking for answers on this? You know, your Homeland Security Secretary is going to be in front of the Senate. He's going to be impeached, and I guess he's going to go through a formal hearing. Unlikely to get impeached with 60, uh, with you need two-thirds of the Senate to do it. Has he provided any answers, even behind closed doors? No, no answers. And jumping ahead, Brian, this we need a change in the White House. The, the goals of this White House have never been to secure the border. Ten million people cross the border illegally under Joe Biden. Ultimately, we need somebody different in the White House whose priority, whose goal is to secure the border. Uh, what's your response to the bipartisan bill that's in the House right now that would talk about a change in asylum laws, bring back return to Mexico, but finance a pure military funding, Ukraine, and no humanitarian aid, and funding for Israel? I would not negotiate with the White House until we share the same goals. I've never heard Joe Biden say, I want to secure the border. I've never heard Chuck Schumer say, I want to secure the border. What their goals have always been is to get as many people across the border legally or illegally as they can to make them into Democrat voters for the future. So I I think regardless of what's in this bill, I, I would not waste any more time, Republican time on this until I hear Joe Biden say, I want to secure the border. All right. Uh, he does say that now. He does say they're, they're in a border crisis. But you do believe that Ukraine are the good guys in this, right? I, I think that we should secure a border before we talk about funding Ukraine. There's so much more Joe Biden could do right now besides sending more money to Ukraine. We could implement more sanctions, banking sanctions on the energy sector. I mentioned on what energy sector on and the Russians selling energy through the banking sector uh, are not being sanctioned right now. So we could sanction all those types of do- uh, dollars coming through the banking that are energy related and anyone doing business with the Russians. Um, additionally, Joe Biden's by Joe Biden shutting down our LNG exports. He artificially uh, in- increases the price of LNG, which helps Russia as well. I mentioned the ghost ships. There's so many more things we can do than just send more money to Ukraine, which looks to me like a seven or 10 year battle going nowhere. Well, I just do think that we have to support them because there's no doubt about it. Uh, Russia is on the march. And what do you think China gets from a Russian victory in Ukraine? What do they learn from that? Well, I, I think that that's just it. You got to go back to this, the start of this. Remember, this all started because Joe Biden left Afghanistan. He showed weakness. Our enemies no longer respect us, let alone fear us. And certainly, to your point, China is seeing. Look, what is the type of response of America? But remember, Brian, we have a hundred thousand American troops in Europe right now, working with NATO, uh, working. You know, the first infantry division from Kansas, from Fort Raleigh, has been over there for years as well. I think we've paid our dues. We need Europe to step up. We're they starting. Are, yeah. We're starting to see that. But I'll believe it when I when I truly do see it. I think there's more that we can that the president can do as well, besides just sending money.
Uh, we'll take a time out. I want to talk about I'm, I'm firmly in support of getting them that money. Uh, I just I just think we got to get politics out of this. And Donald, uh, excuse me, President Biden is totally to blame because he has not effectively, he slow walked the weapon system that if he got everything there right away, we would not have the problems we're having right now. You give these people a fraction of what they need and they fight like lions and they've taken one from losing 25% of their country to now 15. Now they gave up 3%. Now it's at 18%. If you give them the weapons, they kill Russians. I think it's a it's a tough situation. I'm not seeing much progress. At least 200,000 people have died in this war so far. Maybe a million casualties. I think that we should be focused on But it's on all because of Russia though. It's absolutely Russia's Nothing's fault. Nothing with Ukraine. But it's uh, you know this is actually I think it's Joe Biden's fault and certainly Putin has taken advantage of it. Right. Who is the bad guy? When we come back, what happened with the the IVF story in Alabama? What does it mean now that Democrats say I have another chance to retry Roe v. Wade? Uh, let's talk about that with a guy that used to do this for a living. There you go. Dr. Roger Marshall. Don't move. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. And just to be clear, the decision does not outlaw IVF, but obviously makes it more complicated. Can you freeze those embryos? What do you do with embryos that are not used, right? Well, the decision is very clear that a fertilized egg is a child, is a human being, uh, which means that, for example, in my case, when we had five fertilized eggs and three were non-viable, when my doctor discarded those with my consent, uh, that would be considered potentially manslaughter or murder. Well, that's uh, the ruling in Alabama has really have everybody scratching their heads. If you have IVF and you evidently this woman dropped some vials uh, that could have been potentially a infant, could have been an embryo. Uh, they said should she be charged as if, uh, uh, I guess, a murder. And the Supreme Court of Alabama says yes. And that just caused everyone's hair to go on fire. With us right now is Dr. Roger Marshall. What did you do for a living before you got into the Senate? Well, so I was an OBGYN and had a very active inf- infertility practice, helped hundreds of women uh, get pregnant, and certainly referred hundreds of women for IVF. Just think about this today, Brian. 200 babies are going to be born in America today because of IVF. Each one a miracle in themselves, celebrating them. Republicans are the party of pro-family. What's more pro-family than helping women, helping couples have children? So we need to get behind this. I think the beauty of the Dobbs decision is it puts this issue back into the hands of we the people. And I think that the judicial system may be a little bit of overreach in Alabama, but the, the legislative branch can fix the problem. So how do you fix it? We want to make sure if people want to do this IVF, they're having trouble getting pregnant, they want to do this thing uh, through the medical profession, they want to do this. They said there's non-viable embryos. They get discarded. So could you explain that to me? Oh, gosh. Um, look, look, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a priest or a, but you a are rabbi. A doctor. I am a doctor. I, I don't have all the answers. And I think that's a, that's a big difference between myself and some of the folks on the left is that sometimes there's answers that God hides from us. 
Um, all I can do is celebrate the miracle of the births of these babies. I think that God has given us this technology. Uh, I would encourage people that are worried about the IVF and these embryos that they should talk to their to the rabbi, to their priest, somebody that uh, has a better connection than I do with God. I think it's a tough situation, but what I do know is lots of good comes from these IVF babies. Right. And what do people who say because of this ruling – People are not going to be able to get it. Like, for example, some of these people said now in Alabama, my doctor has said we're not going to go forward until we get clarity because they don't want to be accused of manslaughter. Right. And I think that's you know, back to my original point is that the Dobbs decision puts us back into the hands of the local states. So I think the state legislatures need to write something that gives them quickly. protection very quickly. Yesterday, this needs to be a, a priority for the Republican legislature in Alabama to, and get this right. I don't know what that wording looks like, but there's a way to do it. All right. Uh, well, I guess we'll we'll talk about that and see where it goes. Right now, the president of the United States just won South Carolina. He's on the cusp of winning Michigan. He's set up for winning Super Tuesday. Um, uh, one thing he's not doing is winning independence. Does that worry you? Nikki Haley is, seems to be. It, it is a concern. Uh, I've learned not to worry about things, but it's a concern. I think that we have to be, uh, again, this pro-family message, this pro-economy message, safety and security back home, whether you're an independent or a a hardcore Republican. I think folks' number one concern is still the safety and their family, the southern border, inflation, the price of gasoline and groceries. I think we have to bring those messages home. How concerned are you about a government shutdown? You know what the speaker's up against. You know he's got a slight margin. Uh, and I don't they've only have 10 of 12 appropriations bills done, which is a lot. But it then it's got to reconcile with the Senate. Right. What your listeners need to understand is that Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer want to leverage the threat of a show of a shutdown so they can write an omnibus so they can bring all these 12 bills together and then they can write their their legislation, fund their bridges Disaster to nowhere. for a budget. What's that? It's a disaster. For oh, it is absolutely a disaster for our budget. Again, the, the Senate Appropriations Committee did their job back at the end of July of last year. OK. And then the Senate has has only brought like two or three of those bills to the floor. There's 12 buckets of funding. We've only brought, I think, three of those to the Senate floor. Nothing since October. Again, look at their actions, not the words. The actions of Chuck Schumer is he wants an omnibus. He does not want to fund these one at a time. And with the House – what would recommendation would you have for the House? Yep. Find a way to get a CR that brings you what? You you got it. So if we would do the CR, um, go back to resolution. last year. So continuing resolution, which takes us back to last year's funding levels and a 1% cut. If that CR, that continuing resolution is in fact April 30th, then we're forced this 1% cut, $100 billion. It's the lesser of two evils. That would be my recommendation. And jam the Senate with it. Senator Thune is one of the last leaders to endorse President Trump. Looks like everyone's on board. Is the Republican Party united? I, I think we are. You know, we, we have our own opinions. We're not lemmings. We're not going to do everything exactly the same way. But we're united uh, to fight for people to protect our constitutional rights, to secure a southern border, and have a strong economy. Senator Roger Marshall, great to see you in studio. Thanks, Brian. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. I'm a woman of my word. I'm not giving up this fight when a majority of Americans disapprove of both Donald Trump and Joe Biden.
Hey, welcome back. And uh, there is Nikki Haley pointing out the fact that she says, I got 40 percent of the vote, which means Donald Trump didn't. He's got a problem. I'm staying in. But right now, if you look at the 538 latest poll in terms of popularity among Republicans, 72 percent favor Donald Trump, 18 percent favor Nikki Haley. To me, this is a contested primary election. And to me, if you look back in 2016, I think Trump won by five or six over Marco Rubio, who was viable, and Senator, uh, Senator Ted Cruz was tough. They're all in double digits. And no one was saying, hey, what about the 74 percent that didn't vote for Donald Trump? It's called to me a contested election. I also go back to when people just forget when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were fighting it out. I mean, they were basically fighting in every state, neck and neck. It was close. It doesn't mean that every Hillary Clinton supporter wasn't going to support Obama or wouldn't. That's part of the contest. You know, you're in the semifinals now, to be uh, to put it in a sports-related uh, context. Tomorrow's going to be Michigan, and next thing you know, we're going to have Super Tuesday. I know the president wants to get this over with and consolidate money, but I actually think it's good that he gets a chance to record some wins. And he has people on other channels forced to say Donald Trump was strong in males, uh, was strong with college, uh, uh, college high school-educated males, was strong with um, with uh, union workers. He has a lot of times you've got to just say Donald Trump pulled off a 20-point win. So he's won in New Hampshire, Iowa, uh, and now South Carolina. And now he's moving on to Michigan. With us right now to discuss this and the seemingly ouster of Ronna McDaniel is Nicolee Ambrose. She's a Maryland National Committee woman, knows all about the inner workings of the Republican Party. Great to see you, Nicolee. Good Thanks. morning, Brian. Great to be here. You, are you glad Ronna McDaniel is out? So here's the thing. Ron is a great person. She's fantastic. But normally, if you are RNC chair and you you lose one election, you're out. Um, But last election, she won with 70 percent of the vote. So despite these losses, she, um, you know, is she I know she emailed us this morning. She's proud that she fired Pelosi. She's proud that, you know, Republicans won the popular vote in 2022. She's proud of that. And she works very hard. But, you know, I would suggest it might be time for a new flavor. I just wish maybe we had gone in that direction when the regularly scheduled well, election Harmeet, occurred Harmeet last Dillon, year. And you think she would have been a better alternative? You know, I'm just a big fan of let people have a chance. You know, if you're not bringing home the big victories, give someone a chance, else a so, chance to try. Well, you know, they did try and they did vote and she won. She did. And that's my point. So, you know, when she wins by 70 percent, that's really impressive. Rana has... The loyalty of a lot of RNC members because she's just a really lovely person and she absolutely tries her best. But obviously, we would like to win the presidency. We'd like to win the Senate and we would like to increase our margins in the House. All right. I want want you to hear what President Trump said about the Republican Party. Cut five. But now there's a spirit that I have never seen. We ran two great races, but there's never been ever There's never been a spirit like this. And I just want to say that I have never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. Never been like this. But you also have a Republican Party in dire need of funds. The RNC is sucking wind, taking out uh, lines of credit. So I think really one of the lasting effects of that race between Harmeet and Rana going into January of 2023 was – the in-depth reporting on the finances. And I think that really hurt Rana's ability to fundraise with small-dollar donors. And really, small-dollar donors I don't know are the what you life. mean by that. Could you so, 
Right. So we ha- you have big, huge donors, which give tons of money in every different way they can to all these right. different accounts. And then you have, you know, your grandma and grandpa, your moms and dads who give small dollar donations. Those small dollar donations are incredibly important. It generally anyone who wins the presidency wins the small dollar donation competition. It shows the grassroots support. It shows you care. And it, when you add up all those donations, right. that adds up to a ton of money. And I think one of the lasting effects that really hurt Rana after that race was it was a lot harder to bring in those small dollar donors because people had heard some interesting press. So I think it's made it really hard for her the past year. So there's a big story. You have a governor that's high profile, (laughs) uh, Wes Moore, and there was a story out uh, today, the other day. People that meet him say he's very impressive. He seems very good on his feet. We don't know much about him, but people are saying that if Senator – if President Biden really cared about the party. He stepped aside and like people like Gavin Newsom, Governor Whitmer, Governor Pritzker uh, and uh, Governor Shapiro and Governor Westmore fight it out. So, Your Brian, thoughts? you you said the exactly right thing is people don't know much about him. So, folks, I'm from the super blue state of Maryland. And if you ask your Mar- average Marylander about Westmore, they couldn't tell you anything about him. Maybe they've seen a picture where he looks happy. But what I can tell you about Westmore is this. He's one of he's at least two things. He's a aggressive partisan activist. He's very progressive. He will really stop at nothing seemingly to organize infrastructure to make sure uh, very progressive politicians are elected and to serve with him. Number two, he is presiding over some of the most radical bills. Uh, that you'll see in America right now. For example? So, for example, even though he knew um, he was signed a gun bill into law, really restricting people who had authorized concealed carry permits to basically be invalid so it wouldn't work anywhere, he knows that's going to be defeated in court. Absolutely knows it. But it's that you know progressive game of we know we're going to do something unconstitutional just to try to run out the clock. Um, he also, you know, presided our House of Delegates last year voted to literally decriminalize, to make it legal to give people HIV intentionally. Uh, just radical, crazy stuff. Take parents out of education, mm-hmm. the progressive agenda. And if you he wrote this book called The Other Westmore. In this book, he talks about there was a guy about my age, same name, and he ended up in jail. How did we differ? This man was convicted of first-degree murder, and he is lamenting his face. Well, he committed murder. It's that whole progressive gotcha. culture of rewarding the criminal and not protecting the victim. So when you, do, when you dig down deep, there might be some issues there. So Donald Trump walks out of South Carolina with a 20-point victory. Um, 35% of the voters, though, said if convicted on any of these cases, he would be not fit to serve. That according to an ABC poll. These are the type of things you can't control, but you can you have to game plan against because some of these cases like the one in New York is going to be a left wing jury. Yep. If the Georgia thing happens, left wing, right, Fulton County. If you look at if the documents case gets going, it's going to be uh, difficult to uh, fight against. You could see any of these going uh, south. How do you approach this? So here's where I think the Democrats overplayed their hand. And I think it's actually really fortunate for Trump that these Radical civil civil cases went first in New York because your average American looks at this, whether or not they are a Trump fan or not, and they say, this is absurd. This man, he wasn't accused of anything like 
rape, right? He wasn't accused of any of these things that we can't even send people to jail for. And here you have these civil cases with these outrageous penalties. You know, you have Mr. Shark Tank himself saying he would never open a business in New York. I think your average American looks at these cases and thinks it is a political persecution. And I think... Oh, that will really diminish the Democrats' right. returns on these other See, cases. I always thought, too, my feeling is if anyone told you that Hollywood Access Hollywood tape was going to come out in September and that President Trump would win in November, I'd say, oh, absolutely not. Right. Never. Never. Yeah, I mean, look at the George W. Bush DWI story comes out, closes the gap with Al Gore. And are you going to tell me that a conviction here that most people aren't buying into the substance of the case is going to change people's minds? I think it's, a, it's not, to say the least, not a done deal. But when you look at Michigan right now with the President Biden, I think uncommitted is the story. There's a huge push amongst the Bernie Sanders group mm-hmm. and Rashid Tlaib in Michigan tomorrow night to get people to vote uncommitted as to show him – uh, to show him how dissatisfied they are with the support of Israel. Now he's jumping off the Israel bandwagon, and he's already losing the Arab, Muslim, Palestinian vote in a place like Dearborn. I think Joe Biden has a really tough road to hoe. I'm personally kind of excited to just sit back with the popcorn and watch the Democrat civil war. I think it's going to play out not only on the presidential level, but we've got a lot of situations in states and at local levels where I'm just expecting a huge Democrat civil war. And it's about time. They they have for decades enforced uniform party rule. You are not allowed to stray from whatever talking point you are told to utter. One of the reasons I'm so proud to be a Republican. But the point is, They've gotten to the point where you cannot be pro-Palestinian and pro-Jew. It does not work. And this is a time of choosing. Well, unfortunately for the country, he says answer is let's start bailing on Israel at a time in which they need the support yeah. to finish out this war. Absolutely. So um, has there been moves among your party to go after the American Jewish vote? That's always seems to be in the pocket of Democrats. Is there an offensive game plan? Well, we've so we send an RNC delegation over to Israel. Um, absolutely. We are a very obviously pro Israel party. And from a leadership perspective, you're constantly saying hearing people say, of course, this should be the time for more Jewish Americans to come over and affiliate with the Republican Party. I think we could do an even better job of outreach, absolutely. Your thought about the new leadership set to take place will include Laura Trump with the RNC. Right. So uh, Laura has always been very active at showing up to things she's requested to show up to. You know, she she had years of experience in the media before uh, she and Eric got married. Um, She's always been very lovely. Uh, We have the point that this is a mathematical game right now, okay? This is about delegates, and 70% of the delegates get decided by the end of March. By March 12th, we will Trump should be able to reach that magic number of 1,215. And so Trump, President Trump has nominated Michael Watley and Laura Trump to represent his interests at the RNC. So the question for that is mathematically he should technically have the nomination in March – and we have Ron and our uh, co-chair, Drew McKissick, who announced their resignation this morning, effective March 8th, when we are having a meeting, a spring training, which will now become a surprise election. And uh, it is normally, it's, it's expected that the nominee gets their choice. This is occurring a little 
earlier than usual, but we also have the unusual situation that this is the immediate past president representing our party who in the month of March will achieve the number of delegates necessary to confirm that nomination. Would, would you be okay with him using some of the RNC funds to fund his court cases? I think RNC funds are better used for elections. I think that's why people donate to the RNC for, for sure. For sure, we have the presidency to win. We have Senate to win. We have the House to win. I think other right. funds and other accounts would be better used for that. All right, Nicola, uh, Nicola Ambrose, uh, thanks, uh, um, thanks so much for coming down. You're representing Maryland and doing a good job, and we'll see if Larry Hogan has got the momentum behind him to take that Senate seat uh, in Maryland because it's given a lot of people hope, right? We are really excited to be a top five state all of a sudden. Yes, would love to pick up both a Senate seat and a House seat. Nice. All right, Nicoli, thanks so much. Great to be here. Back in a moment. Hear the ins and outs of the 2024 election right here. The Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The most remarkable number to me in the exit poll was 77%. That was the percentage of folks who said they had made up their mind about who they were going to support um, before the start of this calendar year. So it meant only 30, and, 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 and Trump won 70% of those folks. So you, you only have essentially one in four Republican voters, because the South Carolina Republican electorate, I think, is, a, is, is closer to being a microcosm of sort of a generic Republican electorate than anything we've we've experienced so far. So that is uh, Chuck Todd being an analyst now, no longer host to meet the press. But just this is what I like about it, because I know Donald Trump's not perfect. I know he gets himself in his own way a lot, but they never give him a fair shot. And now they're forced to because they look at these results in South Carolina, which are contested by a very formidable candidate, two term governor of South Carolina. And they got to go, well, Trump wins here. Trump wins there. Trump wins there. He's still got loyalty. And they say, wait, they're almost saying as if, don't they know how, how uh, unworthy Donald Trump is? Haven't we shown you that already? Didn't we tell you about January 6th, show you the trial? Didn't we bring Trump up all these cases, pun intended? Some things Trump, you know, might be vulnerable on. What happened in New York? Absolutely not. And instead, he gains popularity. It's not budging. What I think is it's interesting about Nikki Haley, who, as you know before, I'm a fan of, no doubt about it, without... Donald Trump in the race. I think she runs a different race, and I think it's at least her and DeSantis fighting it out. But Nikki Haley went to the Chris Christie, who I'm a fan of too, but he's anti-Trump. Liz Cheney, anti-Trump. Adam Kinzinger, anti-Trump. That's what she's going for. And as Governor DeSantis told me on One Nation on Saturday night two weeks ago, he said the thing about Nikki Haley, she's decided to go for the independence of the Democrats or the anti-Trump wing. And that only makes up 20 percent maximum. So you're only going to ever top out of the minority of votes. Now, she's got a lot of people in South Carolina that remember or like or voted for or won't budge from it. Of course, there's an element of anti-Trump. There's anti-Bush votes. There's a lot of anti-Trump. And there's people that absolutely will do anything for him a world they haven't seen before. So that comes out with the 20-point victory. That comes out with the 18-point win in New Hampshire. That comes out with the resounding win in Iowa. It's about to come. It came in Nevada. And now it's about to come in Michigan again. And Super Tuesday it could sweep. And it makes CNN. It makes MSNBC. 
uh, all these other newspapers and websites. And by the way, as anti-Trump as anything I've seen is drudge. The first five stories are anti-Trump, which, you know, there's the Daily Beast for that. There's the Huffington Post for that. What are they doing? Who snatched the body from the Drudge Report? Now, it's just so brutally anti-Trump. Now, I also thought it was interesting what's at stake for, as I mentioned, President Biden. And what President Biden has got in uh, among the Democrats, people coming out against him. Listen to Rashida Tlaib last week, cut 16. It is also important to create a voting block, something that is a bullhorn to say enough is enough. We don't want a country that supports wars and bombs and destruction. Right now, we feel completely neglected and just unseen by our government. If you want us to be louder, then come here and vote uncommitted. Vote uncommitted in Michigan. Wow, more of a threat than Dean Phillips, right? Bernie Sanders group too, vote uncommitted. Rashida Tlaib, who came to this country, in my view, to be a Palestinian advocate, not for America, has never been pro-Israel, doesn't really act too much pro-America. Most of these squad members feel the same way. You don't hear much about October 7th, but you hear a lot about what happened afterwards, as now 18 of 24 brigades in Hamas have been wiped out, 30% minimum of their... Hierarchy has been wiped out. There is truce talk, a six-month pause, six-week pause to get some hostages out. But Benjamin Netanyahu has just told me on Fox and Friends that that doesn't seem close. they got to come off their demands, so it doesn't seem close for him. And I think uh, Rafa has a plan to get innocents out, but they're going to be going in soon. And that is just outrage 250,000 Palestinians in Michigan. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. I am back. Back from Australia. Happy to be with you here on the Brian Kilmeade Show at 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. And guess what? President Biden has promised to come to town and shut down old traffic. Why? He's going to Wall Street to raise some money, and then he's going to go see Seth Myers, right at uh, Rockefeller Plaza, directly across from us. That's interesting. I wonder how Jimmy Fallon feels about that. Hey, give me the 1230 show where a guy just sits there in a collared shirt and just rants, uh, just, uh, just rants about Donald Trump. I'll take that. I have nothing against soft interviews, but it's just unbelievably frustrating that he has a press corps following him around the world. He never does them. Only 23, and he chooses Seth Meyers. I mean, if he had 60 minutes lined up or Brett Baird later in the week, I think it's a mix, but just an insult that he's going to go over there and, and try to get a layup if he can make heads or tails about what he's saying. We know he's having huge problems. So this hour will be joined by Michael Goodwin, and the bottom of the hour we're going to be joined by uh, Bob Henderson. He's going to be great. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This is time sensitive. It's, it's existential. I just got back from Ukraine. What our bill does is it combines border security with this foreign aid, both existential. And we are forcing this bill to the floor to make sure that everybody acts. And that is Brian Fitzpatrick doing great work as a Republican, getting a bipartisan way forward. That's what Republicans need to do to fund Ukraine and start debating Cong- Congressman Fitzpatrick's border and Ukraine bipartisan bill. Go do it. Plus, the administration is already jumping off Israel's support, but Republicans better not budge. 
Number two. U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement says Ibarra, a Venezuelan citizen, unlawfully entered the country near El Paso, Texas in September 2022. He was detained and then released by Border Protection. In September 2023, ICE says Ibarra was arrested in New York City for allegedly endangering a child. Yeah, killers. That's what Venezuela has been sending across our border in all 50 states and major cities are in the middle of experiencing the effects of President Biden's self-made border catastrophe. There you have a Venezuelan go to New York, break up with his wife, who just got married to get across the border with a kid, got in trouble for driving around the kid on a moped without a helmet, and then goes down to Georgia and kills a jogger nursing student. Unbelievable. Number one. If you look at the numbers, Joe Biden won by 150,000 votes in Michigan. There are 200,000 Muslim or Arab American voters in Michigan. If he alienates all of them, Michigan is gone for him. Rich Rachel Bade weighing in from Politico on um, this week with George Stephanopoulos, which, of course, never has George Stephanopoulos. 2024 Michigan primary on deck. More is at stake for President Biden than Nikki Haley, I believe, as former President Trump. As we look at the state of the race uh, with Super Tuesday looming and three court cases straight ahead, uh, we begin. Uh, Michael Goodwin, are you thrilled the president of the United States is going to do Seth Meyers tonight? Are you allowed to stay up this late, 1230 in the morning to watch? Well, I think uh, he's probably going to tape it earlier because uh, Joe will have his ice cream and sprinkles and be in bed by the time it airs. Um, look, I think that uh, they'll also have to give him cue cards, of course. They'll make it easy for him. So it'll all probably be rehearsed. There will be little, if any, spontaneity. Uh, there will be no really serious questions that he isn't prepared for. I mean, even these cheat sheets that we see him using at White House press conferences, I think that's something, Brian, that I'm still curious about. It looks to me from these cheat sheets that we see him using at the press conferences that he actually knows what the question is going to be. I know. Uh, and I don't think that has been standard fare at the White House. I, I think, think, I think in, if, if I'm correct about history, presidents have – you know, a, a press secretary doing his or her job, it, w- it would be reasonable to canvas, uh, you know, the, the core reporters and say, what's on your mind today? So that you have a little bit of an idea. But the actual question and who's going to ask it, that that smacks of something entirely new. And I have to say, uh, unethical. Because the reporter should not be giving away the question in advance in specificity so that the president can rehearse an answer. I mean, is the president incapable of simply answering the question on the fly? Yes. I mean, these are, these are not obscure questions. They're about big, big topics that the president supposedly is wrestling with uh, that, at that period. Why would he need to be uh, given a cheat sheet? I mean, I, I just think it, it does reveal how Joe Biden simply <clears throat> cannot think his way through these situations. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things going on right now. He's got surrogates doing his work, but it's not working uh, so far in the national head to head. He's losing to Trump on just about every battle, a little bit more by to, to Haley. Uh, but when it comes to the battleground states, he's trailing everywhere except for dead heat in Wisconsin. He's up in Michigan between three, five or seven points, depending on what head to head battle or what uh, companies doing the polling. So here is Gavin Newsom trying to overcome the biggest obstacle for 
uh, for Joe Biden, and that's Joe Biden, cut 11. 76% of voters say they have real concerns about President Biden's ability to serve a second term. Do you think it's responsible for Democrats to put him at the top of the ticket, given those concerns? Responsible. I revere his record. I, I mean, this, what he's done in three years has been a master class. I've been out with, as you know, on the campaign trail. I was just out in California. I've seen him up close. I've seen him from far. But here's my point. It's because of his age that he's been so successful. And because we've seen these bipartisan accomplishments, because of his capacity of understanding, because of his leadership. So the opportunity to express that for four more years, what a gift it is for the American people. Do you believe he believes that? <laughs> I don't believe he believes that for a second. And I think no. he's just having a good time. And by the way, this Kristen Welker lets him talk for like five minutes, cuts off of Byron course. Donald's every, word, every statement. And just said by this stat, too, Biden has done 21 interviews, 33 news conferences. Trump did 36, 53 news conferences. Obama, 102 interviews. Mostly they were just uh, very uh, friendly. And 66 news conferences. So this is now the last one was months ago, and now he does it with Seth Meyers. But go ahead. Look, I think, uh, you know, those numbers say basically, what, 66 uh, over three years, so 25, let's say 25, even, you know, 23 a year, something like that, uh, which is which is about right. I mean, you need about 20 good press conferences, full press conferences, where you take eight or 10 questions on a variety of topics. Uh, you give you give big speeches as president, you know, primetime addresses on serious matters. You speak and you cajole and you bargain. I don't get a sense of Joe Biden doing any of that. There have been stories from Republicans who go into the Oval Office to talk about the president with various topics. And, you know, Biden, one of them described a situation where Biden was nodding yes to something the Republican was saying. And behind the Republican was a staff member vigorously shaking his head no to Biden. Uh, so it's that kind of thing. Is the president not able to make these decisions? And for Gavin Newsom to say his age is an advantage uh, and four more years, I mean, this is this is loyalty to an extreme, in, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, but now we're going to see because I don't you – know, everyone keeps saying he's not going to be the nominee. I don't see any – there's no plan B unless he has a medical incident. Or just wipes out, or let's say this is just a catastrophe. They're just going to just march on with him using Gavin Newsom, maybe eventually Governor Shapiro, Governor Whitmer, to try to get him through and make Donald Trump seem unelectable. Which that they're they're making every effort uh, uh, to have that come out. Uh, meanwhile, there's a fight going on in Israel and Ukraine, and there's a bipartisan push now to try to get Ukraine some funding or else we're going to watch the falling of that country because fundamentally the president slow walked the weapon systems there to begin with and didn't get that country ready for an invasion. Yeah, look, I think the I think the Ukraine situation Brian is is pretty complicated uh, by, by as you say, the, the failure. I mean, there's been a lot of hype about the great spring counteroffensive that was going to change the map of the war. <laughs> it did not. I think the media has been misleading the public in many ways, kind of cheerleading um, uh, the spring offensive, for example. Um, 
and yet it is still a very, very important fight for the United States to help Ukraine. I, I think there, you know, there should be no doubt about that, particularly among Republicans. But at the same time, the I think the White House has to also understand two things. First, the corruption issue in Ukraine has got to be part of the bargain here. You've got to have some kind yeah, of follow the bullets the right money. to the front line. Yeah, yeah, and and it's not. I mean, I I wrote over the weekend. It's like it's like really something in the order of uh, half of the, or a little more than half of the money actually gets to the military. A lot of it involves you know uh, American munitions that are manufactured here and sent over there. That's great for America too. Um, but there's a lot of money that just goes to vague concepts of you know helping small businesses, paying civil service salaries, I mean, pensions. We're paying Ukrainian pensions. I mean, come on. Um, and so that kind of thing, I think, right. has to be washed out. But, but you understand the World White War... House has to do a right. better job of fixing that and not just papering over it. Yeah, I mean, but, for but, that's the one thing the Republicans should be demanding, a swift audit. They should be naming right. retired generals to follow it over there to that's make right. sure things are pointed out on both sides. That's a way not only politically to cover yourself, but to do something responsible for people, because these Ukrainians fight like lions. I don't I have no problem with Zelensky. People have to get the facts. We have a bunch of uh, CPAC attendees saying, well, he won't call elections in their constitution. When they're at war, they don't have elections. Plus, Zelensky would win going away. The other thing they're saying is, well, he's jailing journalists. One journalist, a Chilean American whose expertise was dating and was writing pro-Russian things. He's known to be an alcoholic and tragically he died in jail. I don't know the details. And the reason why they isolated the church, it's a Russian Orthodox church that was spying on the Russia on for, for Russia in the Ukraine. If Cardinal Dolan was doing that for Al Qaeda, we would have a problem with that here. So there's so much misinformation going on right now because people don't like Joe Biden. And sadly, because he has no credibility on on anything international relations, I think a worthy cause is being abandoned. Well, and I would add one more thing, Brian. It's classic Joe Biden just to beat the Republicans over the head, right, on these issues, and for the media to do the same without addressing what are your real complaints, what are your real issues, how do we get you to yes. That's what Joe Biden promised to do as president. And I would say there's one more element. As you mentioned, the Republican congressman working on the border. I think that is the legitimate thing. I think I think Mike Johnson was right, because that's what his conferences want. We'll, we'll give you money for Ukraine, Joe Biden, but we also want our own border secured. And the, the deal that the Democrats in the Senate came up with was not good enough. It would have essentially incorporated some of the worst features of the present system into law. Some of the some of the uh, 
the executive orders that Biden signed would be turned into legislation. That was part of the problem with it. I think, again, Biden needs to negotiate in good faith. And I don't see why he doesn't. It's, it's a mystery to me, Brian. The border is so important. I mean, this murder in Georgia that you mentioned. I mean, this is the horrific things that are happening virtually every day somewhere in America because the border is open. And we have created a problem that's going to take years to resolve. How do you get rid of or deport or what do you do with 8, 9, 10 million people who came here illegally? So, and yeah. yet Biden won't talk about it in a serious way. So I think, this look, this would be good policy to do Ukraine and the border together. It would be good politics for both parties. I don't know why Biden is being so stubborn about the border. Right. So a couple of things. He wasn't going to bring it up and said that uh, Trump broke it. Uh, But remember what, what he said in the past when he was running for office. He made it clear that that border was open, even though he denies it now. Remember this. September 2019, cut 17. I would, in fact, make sure that there is, we immediately surge to the border. All those people are seeking asylum. They deserve to be heard. That's who we are. We're a nation that says if you want to flee and you're fleeing oppression, you should come. And they did. Now we got about 8 to 10 million have come, including a murderer. And for people listening on WABC in New York, they know at 42nd Street has become a shooting gallery. Places more packed than ever, a lot of it with illegal aliens. And he'll give you an example. This Jose Abara, who killed this, accused of killing this uh, college student, nursing student, seemed to be just a fantastic person in daylight. He's a 26-year-old citizen of Venezuela, arrested by ICE September 8th after unlawfully entering the United States near El Paso. He was paroled and released on further processing. Then he was arrested by the NYPD and charged with acting in a manner to injure a child, riding a moped with a kid without a helmet. And then on the 23rd last week, uh, encountered a borrow pursuant to an arrest by ICE, University of Georgia Police Department, charged with murder and other crimes after he obviously went to go visit his brother who got a fake green card and got a job at the University of Georgia. He goes and lives with him and, and murders this jogger uh, in the woods. So that's this is what's coming through our border. Criminals from Venezuela. And you know what Maduro says? Don't mail them back to us. They're not allowed to come. Final thought. Yeah, look, I think this is the problem. Joe Biden has opened this border, and it's one thing to vet people who come in. It's another when you're just overwhelmed by the numbers and you sit there like everything is fine. I Look, I, I think both parties and the gotcha. country would be served by a deal on Ukraine and the border. Right. And I'm, I hope that Biden will come to his senses. I hope Chuck Schumer, Hakeem Jeffries, all those who, who like supposedly adults. care about right. Ukraine, I hope they care as much about the border. Michael Goodwin, always great. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Brian. All right. Thank uh, you. I'm going to take your calls. First time we get back, one 408 It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. So I had a chance to talk to Gavin Newsom, uh, excuse me, talk to Benjamin Netanyahu on Fox and Friends. And I asked him about this comment uh, that Gavin Newsom said. 
about Benjamin Netanyahu saying two-state solution is not going to work. He says he's doubling down on stupid as it relates to a two-state solution and walking away from that. And I appreciate and applaud what the Biden administration did this week uh, with Blinken and others as it relates to the settlements in the West Bank. Let's work to get these hostages home. Let's get to a, back to eliminating Hamas and rebuild Gaza and advance a two-state solution. What Gavin Newsom doesn't understand and what Netanyahu began to explain is that you cannot have a two-state solution because the they had one. And Hamas ends up can, pretending as if they're getting along amounts to one of the most of uh, horrific acts against a state since the Holocaust. And you know what? If you ask the Palestinians who just had their whole cabinet volunteer uh, their resignation, I don't know if Mahmoud Abbas is going to take it, they don't want a two-state solution because they want to eliminate Israel. So Gavin Newsom could sit there and hang out in California and ruin that state, but he can't comment on the state of Israel ever, intelligently. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, We have a lot going on here, especially in New York City, with uh, thousands of illegal immigrants on the streets. Everyone's talking about the the ramp up of uh, what's going on with this violence. It's kind of even bringing uh, working class Americans, uh, our urban Americans over to some of them going to the Republican Party saying, listen, we've got to get rid of uh, this permissive behavior, this criminal first attitude. We'll be discussing some of that as we were with Michael Goodwin. With us right now in studio is Rob Henderson, Air Force veteran, author of a brand new book, started last week, uh, announced last week, released, I should say, Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class, and uh, what he actually went through and how kind of along the way made him a conservative. Rob Henderson in studio. Thanks so much for joining us, Rob. Thank you, Brian. Great to be here. So give me an idea of what it was like growing up as you. What happened to your birth parents? Right. Well, uh, my I was born in Los Angeles in poverty. Um, my birth mother and I, we were homeless for a time. We lived in a car. Eventually, we settled into this slum apartment out in Los Angeles. What happened to your dad? And, and we no, nobody knows. So my mother, eventually, she was interviewed by police and forensic psychologists. Some, some neighbors called the police, and they came, and they asked a question to her. Well, where's this boy's father? Because you're not in a condition to care for him. She was severely addicted to drugs. She said she didn't know. Um, it was only last year that I, I took this uh, 23andMe sort of genetic ancestry test, and I, I knew my mother, my birth mother, was from Seoul. She came to the U.S. from Korea as a young woman to study, and then she just you know, partied a lot and did a lot of drugs. Uh, when she arrived, my father, I learned uh, on that side of my family, uh, he was he was Hispanic. He was Mexican. I went my whole life not knowing this, knew nothing about that side of my family. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a uh, mixed race. What I tell people now is that, uh, you know, I went to bed white adjacent as an Asian American, and then I woke up as an underrepresented minority. As a Hispanic. <laughs> <laughs> so you go through your life, and you, you mentioned some stats, too. It's like a, a staggering like 3% mm-hmm. of uh, foster care kids yeah. end up even going to college, let alone graduating from mm-hmm. college, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's des- dismal. I mean, it's, you're, as, as, a, as a boy in foster care, you're 20 times more likely to be incarcerated than to graduate from college. So that's where you went. Right. I went to college. No, yeah. Before, no, you, you went to foster care. Well, from- I was in foster care. That's right. Yeah. Um, so at three years old, you know, I mentioned the police were called. I entered the Los Angeles County foster care system. My mother uh, was subsequently she went back to Korea and I, I was an American citizen. So I was born in L.A., 
spent the next just shy of five years living in seven different homes all around Los Angeles. And I describe in the book the sort of the chaos and the squalor and the sort of the stress that the foster system is under. So many kids, so few families uh, available to care for them. And it was really those early experiences were really difficult. Did you get uh, you got a couple of families, right? Yeah, well, I was adopted um, after the seventh home I was in. Uh, I was adopted by this kind of blue-collar, working-class family in Northern California, this small town called Red Bluff. And I this was the late 90s, and, you know, I, I got to witness sort of firsthand the, you know, the ongoing kind of deterioration and the difficulties and the struggles of families and people in these working-class areas all across the country. Uh, these were the, sort of the early days of the opioid crisis, uh, you know, people who don't have college educations and, you know, the difficulty in finding employment and work and so on. Drug use was rampant. It was kind of a high crime area. And I describe what, what happened here with my adoptive parents after they divorced and the trouble and mischief I got into with my friends in this community. It must be tough. Always feel like you're auditioning, auditioning to be accepted, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, the, the foster homes, it was like that of each time I entered a new home, um, you know, I wanted the other kids there, my foster siblings to like me, the foster parents. And I learned, you know, how to how to sort of get along in different environments. Uh, later uh, in the in, in my adoptive home in, in Red Bluff, you know, changed another school and met new kids. And it was it was a struggle. I mean, later I had this experience. I joined the military and then I went off to college. And so I went through a lot of different kinds of circumstances and environments. And yeah, I learned. I learned, uh, you know, how to how to get along socially. Certain people influence you and to make you not feel like a victim. You had a different mindset because certain people got to you. Right. Well, it wasn't until I got to college that I started to hear this language of victimhood and, you know, uh, being marginalized and being sort of beleaguered. But what college is that? This was Yale, uh, unsurprisingly. So you earned your way into Yale? (laughs) I got After the Air Force? After the Air Force, I went to Yale in the GI Bill. But, you know, in the foster homes, no one talked about being a victim or being, you know, this, uh, you know, just complaining and, and focusing on your own struggles. It was sort of day to day. You just had to get along and make your way through the world. Uh, same in uh, you know, the working class community I grew up in later, same in the military. No one talked about this, you know, victimhood stuff. Then I get to Yale and it's pervasive. It was the first time someone told me that I was a victim. I'm like, I never, you know, you don't think of yourself in those terms. I mean, what I found interesting was that it's only in environments where there aren't actually that many real victims, like elite universities, that people are so preoccupied with it. And then in places where people are actually struggling, Poor working class areas, kids in foster care, these kinds of really uh, severe circumstances, no one's talking in those terms. It's almost an interesting sort of reversal there. You mean, is it like guilty? I feel guilty they have two parent families. Isn't it overwhelming how many people from elite colleges come from two parent families and how many students resent the two parent family and take it for granted? Yeah, I saw a lot of that on campus. You know, I arrived in 2015 which was kind of the early days of when what you know wokeness and this new wave of political correctness started to spill out of the universities and i saw that students you what know what year are you yeah, talking about this what is 2015 years? okay and i saw these were sort of the early days the mid 2010s was when you know these students eruptions and cancel culture started to kick off trying to get professors and people fired and 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, at Yale, I learned that there are more students from the top 1% of the income scale than the entire bottom 60%. The vast majority of these students were raised by two-parent families. When I would speak with them about their own plans for their own futures and their own families, they would say, oh, yeah, I'm going to get married. But a lot of these students had these very strange beliefs, what I later termed luxury beliefs, of actually the family's unimportant and we should move beyond marriage and that it's this sort of oppressive patriarchal institution. And it was strange to me because they had benefited from having a two-parent family themselves. They plan to pass this benefit forward for their own children. But their public position was, oh, you shouldn't do this. And I'm thinking back to my own life and the way that I grew up and the way that my friends grew up where nobody was raised by two parents. It was a lot of single-parent homes and grandmothers and so on. And I thought, you know, it's not a coincidence that you had this benefit and you ended up going to a place like Yale. And my friends didn't go to college, and I had to sort of scrap and scrape my way through and managed to get into this place on the GI Bill, and I was one of the few with my kind of background there. So why do you think that you didn't think of yourself as a victim when clearly life was not fair to you? I mean, my goodness, it's not your fault you didn't know who your dad was. It's not your fault your mom's addicted to drugs. It's not your fault that no one wanted to adopt you, that foster care rotated you, and that maybe you had some parents that weren't up for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It's not a, it's not a useful way to think. Um, when you're trying to succeed and strive and well, improve your life Well, I think that now, but why didn't you, how did you, were you just born with this resiliency? Um, I think th- to some extent, you know, there's always that question of nature and nurture. I think I had a bit of that tough mindset, that sort of grit built in early on. Uh, but a lot of kids are like this. I mean, if you speak to a lot of kids who survive the foster system or other difficult circumstances, yeah, they're not wallowing in self-pity. Uh, those experiences and those, um, you know, those memories of going through that, it, it's, not, uh, it's not adaptive. When you're trying to survive day to day, thinking of yourself as a victim is just not a useful way to, to think. And later on, you know, I, I, uh, the military also equipped me with that kind of mindset and um, – all of those experiences, in addition to, I think, just sort of being born and maybe sort of oriented toward being, you know, a little bit more resilient. So among the people that endorsed you, uh, Jordan Peterson, he said, read your book twice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know me, Park. Mm-hmm. She's the, the defector from North Korea, right? Yeah. Uh, Drew Pinsky is the best. Yeah. Uh, and J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly, uh, wrote Hillbilly Elegy, mm-hmm. had nothing but he was he had an atypical home, very tough situation, drugs also mm-hmm. involved there. What did that mean to you, that they read your story and said, I'm behind you? Uh, Yeah, I was honored. I was honored to get those blurbs and endorsements from people like J.D. and Jordan and others, Yonmi Park, um, to other people who've had difficult experiences or who are sort of intimately familiar with the research, like someone like Jordan Peterson, a psychologist who's aware of what people in these communities, uh, what they go through. And so speaking with them and and telling them a bit about my story, sending them early chapters of the manuscript and so forth, um, yeah, it just meant a, a great deal. And, you know, there's the, the story. The book is, uh, to some extent, a story of you. resilience and, and climbing upwards and trying to, you know, one person's str- struggle to make their way in the world. But, you know, I tell stories of people who helped me along the way, who imparted good advice and good wisdom and so on. And, you know, that's a that's a point that shines through is that, you know, if you meet a kid who is in difficult circumstances, but you can see a bit of potential shining through to, you know, it's worth extending a helping hand and, you know, um, assisting him on, on his or her journey. Major in psychology, went to the Air Force, then went, went to this place called Yale. But you write you wrote a column for The New York Times says why being a foster child made me a conservative. Why? Well, there are two uh, key points I make in that uh, op ed. And one is family, the importance of family. So 
you know, I didn't really have a stable family growing up. But there were periods sort of interspersed throughout my life where there was a bit of stability. And I did have these sort of surrogate family members, parental figures. And those were the highlights of my upbringing. And I think learning about, you know, having having good role models around, that was really important for me and imparted uh, how to be, you know, a functional and purposeful adult in the world. So that was one piece. And then the other was personal responsibility that, like you mentioned, it's not, it wasn't my fault that I had these difficult early experiences, not knowing my father and so on. But those people aren't going to fix it. It's not like my absentee father is going to reappear in my life and say, hey, I'm sorry, now here's how I'm going to help you. Only I could make the, only, make the difference in my life and only I could make the decision to turn my life around and, and become successful. And the glory is the effort. The outcome you can only control to a degree. But if you're going to grind it out, mm-hmm. you'll get a result. Yeah. And then you learn along the way. You could even learn from negative behavior. Man, I saw the way my mom got addicted to drugs. You're probably the least likely person if you're really going to school on some of the tribulations to be a drug addict. If you talk to Donald Trump, mm-hmm. the reason why his kids don't drink, if you talk to him right now, he watched his brother disintegrate before his eyes. Yeah. He chose instead of taking that path, that's my older brother, I'll do it. He went the other way. He says, no one's drinking. I'm not drinking. None of my kids are drinking. You lose your inheritance. So that's an example. Yeah, of, of learning from the people around you, and that's what I did. I mean, I saw, you know, it's good to have positive role models of knowing what you should be doing, but it's also, you know, in, in some ways it's useful to have the kind of negative role models of seeing people make mistakes around you and learning what not to do. And I learned, right. at least for me, a lot of a lot of what helped to fuel my success was was taking those negative examples and saying, okay, so those that person made that set of self-defeating decisions, that's what not to do, and to avoid that path. So the other thing... That I think is uh, fascinating, too, is that you also experienced parents that were atypical. You also had same-sex parents, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Go foster parents. Yeah. How, how You saw the difficulties there. They experienced homophobia, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My adoptive mother later, you know, there was a divorce with her and my adoptive father. Later, she entered a relationship with a woman, and together they raised me for a period during my adolescence. And, you know, yes, it was a same-sex couple, but in many ways, you know, this was the early 2000s, they did create a kind of conventional, traditional home. You know, we had family dinners, they would help me with my homework, and they would monitor me. And, you know, there was there was one story I tell in the book about how I would argue with them about my chores. I didn't want to do these. I was 13 years old, and you know, my mom and her partner, they, they sat me down and said, hey, you know, your mom and I, we worked together to pay the bills. And, you know, we didn't work together, but they had their, their jobs, they paid the bills, They supported the family, and they said, look, you're getting older. You're 13 years old. You're the man of the house. And I remember that was a very useful reframe for me as a 13-year-old kind of, you know, semi-delinquent of at first I thought these chores were this burden put upon me, but once they called me the man of the house, suddenly I had this vision in my mind of, oh, I'm contributing to this family. And that's another piece of that op-ed I wrote about the, the importance of family and the importance of responsibility. Right, which is not really taught at Yale, even though they're experiencing it. And when everything went crazy at Yale, which it is right now, mm-hmm. and mostly the anti-Semitic behavior and some of the anti-American actions, you were probably one of the few people who weren't surprised. Yeah, well, I was. I was at. Well, when I first arrived on campus, I was very surprised with the culture at Yale. Um, I didn't expect it to be that way. All of the sort of wokeness and political correctness, and the trying to get professors fired for innocuous emails and using the wrong language and you know, making these these wild accusations. But now, you know, the last few years, it's been, you know, perfectly predictable. It's funny, in 2015, I remember sort of reading articles and stuff, and they said, oh, you know, this will pass once these students enter the real world, and once they enter the workforce, they're going to realize you can't behave this way. And now, you know, uh, 
we all live on campus now, you know, as a, as a famous journalist once said that we're, you know, we're seeing it everywhere that it's sort of spilled out of the universities and it's in our everyday lives. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's horrifying to see that the most privileged and the most sort of affluent people in the world right. um, are talking about how difficult their lives are and how we need to remake society. It's just, uh, you know, the, the people who have the least contact with reality think they should have the most control over our lives. A couple more minutes uh, with uh, Rob Henderson when we come back. He's an Air Force veteran, author of the brand-new book, One Week Old, Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. And I think you'll love the inspirational message, which is his story, and how it can uh, really uh, scale up to the big picture in life. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Most of you probably have no idea who I am. Uh, I was actually, I was fired from this show uh, a while ago, but if, you know, don't look that up, please. If you don't know who I am, please don't Google that. It's fine. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> I uh, i don't know. I, this is, I, sh- I probably shouldn't be up here, honestly. I should be home. I should be, I should be a high school football coach. That's what I should be. Like God molded me perfectly to be a high school football coach slash ninth grade sex education teacher. <laughs> but that is, <laughs> that is what I want to be. That is, you know, I can feel it. It's in the, it's like my true calling. That's Shane Gillis on SNL poking fun of the fact that he was fired for an off-color joke that wasn't politically correct. And then now he's back hosting it as one of the hottest comedians in the country. Does it show, as you see Dave Chappelle and others, that we're getting past the worst uh, worst of cancel culture? Uh, Let's hope so. But Rob Anderson saw that up close and personal at Cambridge. He saw that up uh, up close and personal at Yale. And maybe even a little bit in the Air Force. And he has got this uh, brand new book out. It's called... Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. Rob, am I being too optimistic thinking that we're seeing some pushback uh, on the cancel culture, uh, anti-American attitude in this country? Uh, I, I think the optimism is, is warranted. Good. You know, it's, it's slow. It's gradual. Some, I think some uh, sort of areas, some, yeah, are, are doing better than others. I think comedy and... Yeah, com- comedy is doing better, but I think uh, academia, which is the you know what I have the most familiarity with over the last few years, you know I, I don't actually know. I think that there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of purges going on with professors, with students, with postdocs. A lot of people got fired. A lot of people were sort of gently pushed out or f- forced to resign. And so now what we're seeing is you know people will say, oh, things have calmed down in higher education. Things seem to be getting a little bit better. But part of that is just because the troublemakers <laughs> have been ejected and there's no one left to sort of voice their complaints. Mm-hmm. But that being said, uh, the people who do remain, there's a little bit of – I'm seeing signs of reform from within. So cautious optimism is warranted. All right. That's good. Cautious optimism about your book. And you guys said after everything you've been through, foster care, adopted, uh, with your mom, poverty, you said it made you more of a conservative – and some of the details are in your book, Troubled. Uh, who is anything but now, Rob? Thanks so much. More inspirational than anybody I've met in quite some time. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Brian. All right, keep it here. Brian Kill Me Joe. Just getting started. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. Brian Kilmeade back right in midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. Guess what? President of the United States coming here in a few hours. He's going to go to Wall Street, earn a little bit of money. And then he's going to raise a little bit of money. Then he's going to go on Seth Meyers. I'm not putting down an entertainment interview. I think that's part of it now since Bill Clinton made it cool in Arsenio with Arsenio in the 90s. I just want to think you got to mix it up with some real interviews. And the problem is he can't do it. I'm watching Governor Newsom go at him, Governor Whitmer trying to save him in Michigan. Can't do it. And that's what's going to make this so exciting. Uh, and as we still have primary contests going tomorrow in Michigan. So before we go any further, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This is time sensitive. It's, it's existential. I just got back from Ukraine. What our bill does is it combines border security with this foreign aid, both existential. And we are forcing this bill to the floor to make sure that everybody acts. Find a way, guys. That's Brian Fitzpatrick, Pennsylvania congressman, Republican. Find a way to fund Ukraine. Find a way to fix the border, whether it's rules, money, whatever. Get it done. Plus, the administration's already jumping off the Israeli bandwagon. I hope Republicans stay the course. Number two. U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement says Ibarra, a Venezuelan citizen, unlawfully entered the country near El Paso, Texas in September 2022. He was detained and then released by border protection. In September 2023, ICE says Ibarra was arrested in New York City for allegedly endangering a child. All right, that was uh, CBS telling you what's going. Killers, that's what Venezuelans have been sending us across our border in all 50 states. And guess who got special dispensation in 2022? Venezuelans, Haitians, and Cubans. They're emptying their prisons again. We're doing nothing about it. But sadly, American citizens are not only paying the freight, but falling victim. In Midtown Manhattan, it's a shooting gallery. We know about the cops getting beaten up, all Venezuelans. And now we have a murderer who is in New York goes to Georgia and kills a nursing student. Number one. If you look at the numbers, Joe Biden won by 150,000 votes in Michigan. There are 200,000 Muslim or Arab American voters in Michigan. If he alienates all of them, Michigan is gone for him. That is true, and that's Rachel Bade. I love Politico. 2024, Michigan primary on deck, and more is at stake for President Biden than Nikki Haley or former President Trump. As we look at the state of the race, on Super Tuesday is looming, and three court cases straight ahead. And here's what I'm talking about. I mean, first off, when you just heard Rachel Bade talk, it's because, and I think you're right, President Biden initially says, I'm with you, Israel. I'm going to go visit. That's great. He does it. And since that time, his support for Israel has withered. He does not like the way they're fighting in Gaza. To me, it's the only way. They massacred our people. If they massacred our people, we're going right into Afghanistan. Guns are blazing. They're going right into Gaza. Guns are blazing. And they still have lost over 500 troops since October, since they went in probably October 20th. First, they were bombing. They loosened it up. And sadly, civilians are in the way. But guess one of the reasons they are in the way is because they're hiding. They are hiding behind Hamas. Hamas is hiding behind civilians. Some of them, they're leaving them in their buildings at gunpoint. And uh, that's one thing that you look at this administration on. Now they're starting to say, wow, I'm losing the Dearborn crowd. I'm losing Muslims. I'm losing Arabs. I'm losing Palestinians. I'm losing some Democrats. And because of that, they're starting to wither and, and melt away. And that is why when you look at what's happening in Michigan, the president's now trailing by five to the former president. He's trailing by eight to, I think, Nikki Haley. And when you look at the big picture there, 
the one thing they could do to win it back is sending Governor Whitmer. So the first story in the New York Times today is Governor Whitmer. She's been told to save Michigan. But guess what? When she was going to an opening of a hospital by a Muslim doctors and she saw protesters out there saying, stay away, Governor Whitmer. Guess what? She stayed away which shows a lack of guts. How are you going to go into hostile territory? Do what John McCain did. You go in there and tell your story. Listen to what Rashida Tlaib has said. He's encouraging Democrats to vote out Joe Biden. Listen now, cut 16. It is also important to create a voting block, something that is a bullhorn to say enough is enough. We don't want a country that supports war, wars and bombs and destruction. Right now, we feel completely neglected, neglected and just unseen by our government. If you want us to be louder, then come here and vote uncommitted. Wow. So the the Bernie Sanders group, same thing, vote uncommitted. This is why uh, Biden, who beat Trump 50-47 last time by by, uh, 200,000 votes, is now losing by as many as five because Democrats are saying, I'm out. And I think for the most part, President Trump would be thoroughly supporting Netanyahu, maybe getting them angrier, but he's keeping his... Uh, keeping a lower profile and letting them beat up on Joe Biden. And by the way, they were having a, uh, I thought it was interesting that Governor Whitmer was asked to go save his job. And now she says she's paying the price. Whitmer had, there was a sign out there and says, calling her gutless. Now, Osama Sublani, a publisher of Arab American News, said this to the governor. Says, Governor, you can come and talk to us if you come to represent yourself. But if Joe Biden, if you're coming to represent Joe Biden, I am shutting the door. This guy is in panic mode. That's why if their uncommitted vote is as high as it could be, there is going to be a flat out abandonment of Israel, which is the right cause here. I don't want any civilians to die, but Hamas is solely responsible. I talked to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and you're going to hear some more of that interview. But coming up next, I'm going to do a simulcast with Harris Faulkner. On Fox Business, you get a chance to see the radio studio. I'll talk to Harris. Then we'll go inside politics with Josh Krasher and then talk about why I believe we have to fund Ukraine. Border two, got it. Understood. I care just as much. But the Ukrainians deserve our support, and I'll explain why. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Glad you're here. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. The Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, when I think we'll probably end up taking this to the bottom of the hour. Usually with Stuart Varney, when we do a simulcast, there's some room at the bottom where I could take some phone calls. But I'll probably have to wait until about 45 after. But I'm about to go on with Harris Faulkner on Fox News Channel. And we'll talk about a lot of the same things that we've been discussing. We're talking about the drama on Michigan, what happened in South Carolina on Saturday, Nikki Haley staying in, the vice presidential candidates, the runners-up, uh, that are still vying for it. I never remember a time where vice presidential candidates are just coming out saying, I want it. Yeah. I mean, because they know, especially why it's attractive, is number one, you get to do stuff. Mike Pence did a lot. And the president had no problem with it. Number two is, like it, whether Trump has the best four years or the most controversial four years, he's out. And they know if you were the vice president, you got the, the, the machine, you got the White House machine to propel you forward. Bush 41, the White House machine to propel you forward. It certainly was helpful 
Uh, not for Al Gore. I mean, maybe Al Gore wouldn't resonate at all, especially if he didn't have the machine of Bill Clinton behind him. And if it's Christy Noem as Elise Stefanik, uh, if it is uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, if it's Ron DeSantis as mentioned before, I don't see that happening. Marco Rubio has been mentioned by some if he wants to get out of uh, Florida and do it. And we'll talk about that. And then also talk about some people that are extremely critical and delusional about the Trump hatred. And that is Bob Costas. So that is all lining up. And what you're going to hear is, too, before I go on, I want you to hear the whole introduction so you have to understand where we're going out with the segment. So it might be a little bit different from you used to. So I want you to listen in now to Mr. Harris Faulkner. Introduce financial us. backers, the Koch brothers, backed Americans for Prosperity, writing, we don't believe any outside group can make a material difference to widen her path to victory. The Wall Street Journal editorial board is warning that despite Donald Trump's big win, his Republican Party is divided. Here's a quote. He wins big in South Carolina, but won't beat Joe Biden without Nikki Haley's voters. California Governor Gavin Newsom is among those who say Haley is helping his party. I don't know why Democrats would want her out of the race. She's one of our better surrogates. I mean, she's defining the opposition to Trump incredibly effectively. I mean, she's making points I'm applauding every single day about his temperament, his capacity, uh, his, you know, unraveling in real time. Uh, and so I think it's I think she's been incredibly effective. So I hope she stays in personally. Brian Kilmeade, Fox and Friends co-host and host of the Brian Kilmeade radio show and One Nation. Brian, I've actually heard exactly what Gavin Newsom was saying come out of your mouth. Yes, he copies me all the time, except for I would have not raised taxes like that, and I would not have had dinner at the French Laundry during the pandemic. Besides that, we're very similar. Uh, Harris, a couple of things. Nikki Haley, I think, is a fine candidate, and I think she's staying in for a couple of reasons. She's staying in, number one, she wants to say, I told you so, if Trump loses. And she believes that the world of Trump and the MAGA movement, as Joe Biden has labeled it, will end if Donald Trump loses. She thinks it's going to go the way of the Tea Party. That's, I think, our hunch. That's the only thing I could think of. Because Ron DeSantis basically said, look, I agree with everything Donald Trump's doing. I'll do it better, more efficiently, without the controversy. When he seems as though the party wasn't going to get over Trump and they wanted to make him number one, DeSantis says, okay, I'm out. When, when Governor Haley was doing the same thing, he's a friend of mine. I like working for him. This is, uh, this is my time. That was his time. That was interesting. But now she is going down. It sounds like she might as well be Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. She's saying he's not going to beat Joe Biden, saying that he's lost it, not the same guy off the teleprompter, is too old. Really? And the chaos just follows him. These are Democratic arguments. So it's like she's in the Chris Christie, Liz Cheney lane, and I just think it's a huge risk for her. Well, what Gavin Newsom said that I've heard you say is that it's helping the Democrats at no this doubt. point. I mean, he he basically made the point that she's defining Donald Trump in a way that they can use it. Fifty nine percent, by the way. And and this is just in South Carolina, reportedly, um, of the people who voted for her say that they would never vote for Donald Trump. So that that part about whether or not Donald Trump is at all paying attention or needs to pay attention to Nikki Haley right now, I guess you could argue over that. But if people would only vote for her, how many people are we talking about? And and should he be worried about that? I think it's a couple of things. If you ask fighters before a fight, 
They're never going to be friends with that other guy, right? But at the end, 99% of the time, they end up hugging it out. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton was as bitter as I can remember. John McCain against George Bush, as bitter as I can remember. At the end of it, it says, well, how can I help? Now, this might take longer, but if you ask, I, I vote for Nikki Haley. I'm going up to the booth. I come out of the booth, and there's somebody with a clipboard who says, would you ever vote for Donald Trump if Nikki Haley loses? No. But to me, you could absolutely see the momentum changing come fall when Joe Biden and, uh, Joe, and Donald Trump contrast each other. Let them know with the direct, different directions of the country, especially when it comes on the border. I'm pretty sure that a lot yeah. of those Haley supporters are some of the people that put her in the office twice. You don't, you know, don't really have resentment, maybe take ownership of her because that's when she came of age as a candidate. Well, but she's really not helpful with those type of comments on Trump. We're about to see how different they are at the border because both presidents will be at the border on Thursday, 45 and 46. And I, I opened this hour by saying, how does it feel to follow Donald Trump? I mean, that announcement about Joe Biden was made just a, a few minutes before we went to air. It, it's going to be an interesting situation to watch them. One man saying what I did work, the other man saying what I did didn't work, but I'm going to try to fix it by executive order before I have to tell the nation what the status of it is. The State of the Union. And um, go, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, well, my feeling on this is, too, I don't need Donald Trump's speech and Joe Biden's speech. I was in America at the time. I know what was working. <laughs> yeah. And when things weren't working for Donald Trump, you know what he did? He acknowledged it and he fired people. And then he sit there and said, I want you to go to those other countries where they're coming from. And I want you to take their aid away. And I want you to tell them there's going to be incentives if you can crack down on your country. And I'm going to go tell Mexico, even though you're a socialist, I bet you're going to do business with you. You're going to stay in Mexico. And that's what's going to happen. In return, I'm not going to put tariffs on you. So I know this. I don't need a 30-second ad. I know it worked. And when Joe Biden puts in the executive orders he's rumored to, to do, he will defy his own words that said that well, nothing I can do to control this has to be done through Congress. So you have a bunch of bad options, Mr. President, and you're, all, you're, you're all coming right. to the border two times in three years is not great. Uh, let's add this to the mix. Critics are railing against sportscaster Bob Costas, who said this about former President Trump and his supporters on CNN this weekend. Let's watch. He is by far the most disgraceful figure in modern presidential history. He's only become more disgraceful since 2016 and since 2020. He is a bubbling cauldron of loathsome traits. You have to be in the throes of some sort of toxic delusion in an toxic cult to believe that Donald Trump has ever been in any sense emotionally, psychologically, intellectually or ethically fit to be president. Brian. I know Bob Costas. I know how bright he is. Best sport. When, by the time he was 34, he was the best sportscaster in the country doing all the biggest events ever. I know that's exactly how he feels. But I think it's so, it's so shallow of him to think that you can have your feelings and put down 74 million people along mm -hmm. the way. If people if you, who are supportive, especially him coming from a place where people support their teams and their players and their boxers and, and their athletes, and people are, are loyal. There are people loyal to him for reasons they should be respected for and analyzed because once but again, that's should the Hillary, be respected. Right. And like, that's I the mean, Hillary Democrats want their voters to be respected. Can you imagine if a Republican candidate called them all deplorable? I mean, come they on. Did. And this has she been going did. on for years. I, I want to get to this because I know you have some some thoughts on it. So Republicans on former President Bush or former President Trump's VP shortlist making their cases to voters over the weekend. Let's watch. 
the Republican primary is over and Donald Trump is our nominee. I was one of the first people to endorse Donald J. Trump. I'm proud to be the first member of Congress to endorse President Trump. Any super PAC or C4 or whatever entity that supported me during that campaign. I'm publicly calling on them to use their resources to support Donald J. Trump. There's a reason why they're so afraid of him, because he poses a threat to this establishment. We've got to have leadership that's going to say tough things when we need to hear them. And we have that leadership this November in Donald J. Trump. Republicans at CPAC were asked for their top pick for vice president. The straw poll found that South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and Vivek Ramaswamy tied for first place, followed by Tulsi Gabbard, House Republican Chair Elise Stefanik, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Brian. Those people way to the right are not going to help the president. He's already got them. He needs people that are somewhat open to understand that that vice presidential slot is probably the leading candidate to be the next president because he's four and out. Got it? So who? So my feeling is it's Elise Stefanik. And the second one would be Tim Scott. Just judging by the thing that President Trump has been saying about Tim Scott, and Tim Scott's one of the most respected people I know. Anyone that knows him just has great respect for him. He still gets high marks in South Carolina, around the country, even across the aisle. But if I, was, if I said right now, I believe Elise Stefanik would deliver it. Also, the president in the back of his head still thinks he's got a shot at New York, and she could help galvanize upstate New York and overcome maybe some resistance that hurt Lee Zeldin in the city. Now he's got the New York Jewish vote that more open to a Republican candidate uh, after what we're seeing going on right now. Uh, So I think this could really go her way. I've never seen more candidates say, I want it. No one's playing coy, Harris. No one's saying, well, well look, who knows? I, I love the fact that people want to lead this country because it's a mess. Yes. And if they're Americans who love America that much, let, let's see all of them. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's what's great about America. We always have a future. God bless us all. Uh, Brian, I have to let you go or your, your producers are, are going to leave me nasty, Graham. So, uh, no, um, no, it's okay. you got Harris. a commercial that's, that's about to The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I will always defend Medicare and Social Security, which, as you know, Nikki is not doing a good job on that. You know, we sort of don't even talk about her anymore. It's amazing when you do badly in the polls how you don't mention people, isn't it? It's an amazing phenomenon. Uh, that is President Trump, who's not really mentioned Nikki Haley much. He did, she did very uh, tactically. It was a great move that he did not mention her, got on right away. As soon as he won South Carolina, within minutes, he's on stage going, thank you so much, and Henry McMaster, the governor, and I want you to meet uh, Michael Waltz and uh, Governor Joe, excuse me, Congressman Joe Wilson and his son, the attorney general, and that was good. And that's what happened in New Hampshire, but he got really angry that she stayed in. Uh, But that was just interesting. By the way, on a side note, any responsible president has to address Social Security. It goes bankrupt. And what Nikki Haley was saying, I don't really have any problem with. Got to raise the age we're living longer. So um, I think the president knows mentioning Social Security panics uh, seniors. But just trust me, who's ever president next has got to do something about Social Security. Uh, Let's break in Josh Krasher, Fox News political analyst and editor-in-chief of Jewish Insider. Josh, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Great to be back with you. Hey, Josh, first off, on Tuesday, I believe – 
that President Biden's got more at stake than former President Trump because in Michigan, uh, the uncommitted uh, or and the, the stiff arm, the Heisman to Biden is gaining steam. Yeah, you're ahead of the curve, uh, Brian. And I feel like there's been so much attention paid to the challenges that Trump has within the Republican coalition uh, with suburban voters, with sort of the more moderate voters. But the bigger issue, if you look at the polls and if you look at that, that result come Tuesday in Michigan, is that you could have the real possibility of a Biden embarrassment within his own party where, you know, We'll see what the number is, but if, if over 20 percent of the vote, Democratic voters in Michigan vote uncommitted, refuse to back uh, their, their their president, that is a big, big red flag. It would be bigger than anything we, we, we've seen to the, in, in the nomination process so far. Some of it is about Middle East policy. Some of it is about sort of the far left, the anti-Israel forces in Dearborn. Uh, but it's also – well beyond that, a lot of union uh, workers are upset about his push for electric vehicles that, that have really alienated a big part of the Democratic constituency. There's the age issue, which we've talked about endlessly, and it's a big big issue on the minds of even Michigan Democrats. And you also uh, have a lot of issues with African-American voters. Uh, the, the Fox poll, and there was another poll over the weekend, show that over 20 percent of Michigan uh, African-American Democrats are going to vote for Donald Trump in, in, in November. Now, it's one poll, two polls, you know, maybe maybe – too, 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 too bullish of a number, but that would be a sea change. I mean, if, if Biden loses anything upwards of 20 percent of the of black vote, um, Katie bar the door. <laughs> you know, that is that is a surefire loss in the state of Michigan. So that that's going to be very interesting to watch, too, when, when you look at the primary vote coming in this week. Yeah. It's a, yeah. I think it's fascinating. So Nikki Haley stays in the race. What does Josh Krashauer think the reason is? It's a good question. I mean, look, I, I, I think. If you asked me a few weeks ago, I, I thought she might be making a play long term for no labels for, you know, that she is sort of in a, in a world of fantasy politics. She actually is your, your ideal no labels candidate. She has a lot of support from from donors. She has money to, 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 to raise and to keep this race going. But she also has a profile. Enough Republicans would support her. She would probably peel off some Democrats that were worried about Biden's age. Uh, she would she would have to make a mark uh, if she could qualify and make the ballot if she went third party. I don't know if that's what she's, she says she's not going to do. That. She's denied that, 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 that that's at all of interest to her. Um, but she doesn't really have much of an endgame. She has the money to go on. But she's still getting – she got $1 million, uh, a lot of anti-Trump money coming in after losing South Carolina. But she just doesn't, you know, doesn't have a real path to win the nomination. So yeah, I, I think the options are she wants to create a space for people who are more traditional Republicans, classic conservatives, uh, foreign policy uh, interventionists, hawks. Uh, to have 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 a space within the party, and a lot of people are still uncomfortable uh, with Trump as the party leader. So she has become that vehicle, um, a protest vehicle for a lot of these uh, Republicans still not comfortable with Trump. It'll be interesting to see how much of the vote she gets in in the Super Tuesday states because she's not going to win any of them, I don't think. But she, if she gets thirty percent, forty percent in Michigan or Virginia or maybe some of the more moderate uh, battlegrounds. On, on the Super Tuesday map, that would be a big sign to Trump that he he still has an issue to deal with with his coalition as well. Um, so for someone like me as a political analyst, I'm actually fast. I, I, I'm encouraging Nikki Haley to stay in so we can see where 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 the splits within the party are. Um, but look, I don't see I don't I don't think she has a path at all for 2024. And frankly, she's burning her bridges with the Republican Party. Uh, I, I don't buy this 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 narrative that well if Trump somehow you know 
has a real problem uh, and can't run in 2024, that she would be the next in line. I think she's burnt enough bridges within the party that they would go a totally different direction than Nikki Haley. So the, uh, Nikki Haley got some bad news yesterday. She lost the Koch brothers and all those millions cut for. I'm not worried. Americans for Prosperity was an amazing partner. They strongly believe in freedom. They believe in limited government. They believe in all the things that I, as a conservative, believe in. They've been fantastic through these states. So she's not going to panic on that, but she does have money to move on. She's going to do it. So what I like personally is if you're Trump, you haven't heard a lot of good news. You have all the court cases, the charges, the indictments. And then when the charges came in and the, as Alvin Bragg kicked it off, his poll numbers start going up. And then Iowa happens. He wins big. New Hampshire, he wins again. South Carolina, he wins. I'm watching these other channels have to grit their teeth and talk about how more powerful he is. They're also looking at the battleground station, which he's beating Joe Biden. But the more they talk about Nikki Haley and Donald Trump and Donald Trump winning, it's less time that they're talking about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And we're going to have nine months of the same storyline and right now, these are a pos- it is a positive story for Trump. Am I overestimating that? Well, look, I, I, I think there's a lot that can happen in the next nine months. It is, that is a lifetime in politics. I, I think we're going to be spending as much time looking at rulings in the various courtrooms as having an impact on or maybe lack of impact on, on Trump's political standing as the traditional events on the campaign trail. I mean, keep in mind, Brian. Trump hardly did a couple rallies in South Carolina, but Haley did the regular day-to-day campaign in South Carolina. Trump, you know, you know, showed up for a few times, and and he won easily. And the the, the old rules of how to succeed in politics and primary politics, especially, are out the window. And and also the rules of usually when you're indicted or usually when you're facing legal problems that usually. He really, really stunts your support. Trump has been unaffected by it. So uh, there, there are a lot of known unknowns, but I also think we're in a pretty stable situation where, as you say, <laughs> we, you know, voters don't like either candidate all that much, but they're kind of resigned to them. They, they, they don't want to kind of try, try any, they don't want to kind of pull the lever and, and, and blow things up out of fear of what that would happen, what would happen in that scenario. So, so I, I think we're going to have a very predictable uh, nine months of a, a general election. And uh, I think the biggest question, the biggest question I'm asking, Brian, is whether which party is better able to keep their coalition together, whether Trump can kind of bring back those suburban swing voters, the Haley voters into the fold, or whether Biden can get the younger voters and the you know African-American voters and the progressives back in his fold, and they're defecting from him as well. So that, that's going to be the challenge. Who, who can keep their coalition together more effectively? So now we know that they're, they see the border as a major issue and blaming President uh, Trump for breaking the border on the bipartisan deal. I don't think it's resonating uh, as much as Gavin Newsom thinks it is and saying, OK, now it's the Republicans problem, especially when you have the killing of this college jogger nursing student from somebody who came across the border from Venezuela who gets tested since 2022, gets special dispensation because Venezuela doesn't want to take them back. How big a deal is it? I know Eric Erickson in Georgia said that Basically, Georgia just went to Trump after that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think it was already going to Trump, but that, that's an issue that will energize every element of the Republican Party, from the moderates to the conservatives and in, independents as well. Uh, and look, it, it's telling that you don't. A lot of a lot of media outlets aren't even talking about the the criminals' immigration status. They, they, that shows you how much they're worried about this as a political issue, and they're trying to avoid covering an uncomfortable reality, an uncomfortable truth that's certainly going to come up during the campaign. It's, it's an awful incident uh, in, in in Georgia. So yeah, border. I mean, look at the polling: border, border security, immigration at the top issue. It, it, it energizes the base more than 
you know, the, the swing voters and, and, and certainly not the Democrats, but it still is a very resonant issue. And it's one when you have an incident like that, a tragedy like that, it, it, right. it has more impact. It gets more people engaged and, and concerned about uh, our border policy. So we got to see if we're going to fund the government. That's intriguing. We got to see a speaker that's going to assert himself. That'll be interesting. But also for me, I want to see Ukraine funded. I understand if you want to link the border together, do something that's going to work. Maybe Senator Langford's program wasn't good enough because too much. Uh, there was too much, um, I guess, wiggle room for a president to implement the asylum laws. They were saying that discretion, you know, the president had no trust there. But listen to Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican. Cut 26. We have time-sensitive existential challenges right now. Ukraine is weeks away from giving up significant ground, and we cannot allow Russia to win. So what we are doing is adding an additional pressure point to get a bill to the floor that has bipartisan support in the House. My conversations with my Senate colleagues any bill that comes out of the House with bipartisan support, in all likelihood, will emerge out of the Senate. So you're going to do special dispensation. They got they talked to the parliamentarian, and they could uh, they could sidestep the speaker and bring part his bipartisan legislation forward, which would change border rules, including put back remain in Mexico, as well as get 50 billion of pure military aid to Ukraine and about 15 to Israel. Your thoughts about that move? I think it's going to be hard to get the Fitzpatrick compromise to pass. I, I'm not even sure it would have enough votes, um, even though it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, it's a definition of, of bipartisan. It's compromises on all, on all sides. But we saw how hard it was to get um, support uh, in the House for the, the original, um, you know, Lankford proposal. Uh, you know, I, 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 I actually think Republicans – just on a, you're seeing Republicans who are re- retiring or who have less political skin in the game uh, be much more open about how they need it get a bipartisan deal on at least the foreign aid on help to Ukraine, especially. Uh, I, I don't think Republicans have really thought the politics through that that well. If, if Russia ends up making advances in Ukraine, if you have a hungry Vladimir Putin you know, eating up territory um, and Democrats and Biden can point the finger right right at Mike Johnson's doorstep, uh, that would be a, just a very, very damaging political moment can. for Republicans. You know yeah. what? I, I listen, it's such a reach for people to say the Republicans now own the broken border. But it is not a reach for them to say that if Russia runs through Kiev and wins that battle, that is on Republicans. Yep. Yep. It would be it would be I like to say in politics, people don't care about foreign policy until there's like, you know, maybe some people on the base. Maybe the people, but really, this is not a top issue unless you're seeing something like Putin and, you know, eat up the, 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 and actually make, make, make inroads into Ukraine and take Kiev and, and God forbid what could happen after that. Right. So I don't think Republicans have really thought that they're, they're, they're so kind of immersed in the kind of the short term polling that they haven't thought about what happens if they don't actually pass uh, the, the military aid that, that Ukraine badly needs. Um, I think they're kind of just, you know, putting their heads, their fingers in their ears and, and ignoring just political reality. And yes, the, the base, there are increasing numbers of, of, of sort of the MAGA base that don't want to fund Ukraine or have want to pair it with, you know, or, you know, they're, I think they're actually very, very skeptical of foreign aid and military aid generally. But boy, the, I think the politics would turn really quickly if we see images of Ukrainians getting slaughtered and, and keep falling to the, to, to the Russians. That would be about as bad a political headache for Republicans as you possibly could imagine. I'm with you. And lastly, Ronna McDaniel's out as RNC chair. It looks like they had to take a line of credit to finance a lot of what was going on. Uh, how do you view her? How do you view this move? Well, you know, look, I think she, she lasted quite quite a long time, and, and I think she did an overall capable job. I think the big question now is how much money uh, is in the RNC coffers, how they've been outraised by the Democratic National Committee. 
Uh, and and look, I I think McDaniel is, is you know she's basically been a proxy for for, for for a long time at least for Donald Trump uh, since, since especially since the last few weeks when he's sort of seemingly down the nomination. So I think a lot of the challenges for the RNC has been that they haven't been their own entity. They they've kind of been seen as overly dependent on Trump. And I think that's the one thing I would say is a big warning sign writ large for Republicans is Donald Trump has been really really effective in. General at raising small dollar donors, donations. He's been, he's been a very effective small dollar uh, vacuum, even as like maybe some of the big donors are a little less less eager to give to the RNC. Uh, but the, you're seeing data showing that the small dollar numbers aren't, aren't the donors aren't there as, as they were in 2020, as they were in 2016. And that's a warning sign. Like that's a warning sign, both financially, maybe a sign that people are just sick of politics. They're kind of tuning out on both sides, and even some of the the hardcore. Trump supporters may not be quite as enthused as they were in the last two elections. Uh, Josh, so much, so intriguing. It's a great time of year. Uh, and we can always say so much about this is unprecedented. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the results in Michigan. And tomorrow is Michigan Day. Josh Krashauer, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right, one 408 7669 I see you up there in Michigan. I see you up there in Omaha, Nebraska. I'll try to get to as many calls as possible. Also, I had a chance to spoke to speak exclusively to Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, on Fox and Friends. I'll bring you some of that interview. A lot going on. Brian Kilmeade Show. On the road to 2024. I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. So we have Michigan coming next week. We have Super Tuesday. We have Paul coming. And we'll be there with results and analysis every step of the way. We're headed to Michigan and we're headed to the Super Tuesday state. Nikki, we're going to see how that all turns out. The 2024 primary on the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. It was reported that President Biden's campaign ended its January fundraising with $56 million in the bank. Now, if you can only remember his ATM code. Okay, there you go. That was a shot across the bow of an old president. Uh, Meanwhile, there's so much at stake. He's going on the border on Thursday. He needs... Uh, Ukraine, he needs Ukraine money, as we've been mentioning, and he's trying to discourage Israel from going into Rafa. But how can you expect a victory if you don't go for victory? Provide an exit uh, ramp for the civilians to get out, but you have to finish off Hamas in Rafa. Howard, listening on Coyo in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Howard. Hey, Brian, like you and Josh were just talking about, Biden is the one that gave us the Afghanistan debacle. But now it's the queasy Republicans who are going to cost us Ukraine. Those front lines in Ukraine are not static. Like you said, Brian, Putin will crash through and go to Kiev. I don't want my grandson drafted in a few years to fight Russians in NATO countries such as Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And because of Matt Gates and Steve Bannon. And because these people just say, uh, and other people go out there and go, well, I don't, I don't want to be. Uh, we have our own border, our own problems. There's a foreign policy budget, there's a defense budget, and there's a homeland security budget. There's separate budgets. Last time we tried to take defense spending to build a wall, there was a series of court cases. Ultimately, the president did it. But you go out there, you provide weapons. We buy it from ourselves, so the money stays here, and then the money go, the weapons go there. I'm all for better auditing. I'm all for following the last bullet to the to the front lines in Ukraine. I am not for paying pensions. 
But you go out there, provide aid. These guys fight like lions. Let them win. All right. Thanks so much for the call, Howard. Appreciate it. It just blows me away. By the way, quick announcement. I can't believe it's. I know it seems like a far, uh, far away, but coming up on April 27th, I'll be in uh, right outside Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, yeah, right outside Henderson, Nevada. And it's going to be a great show. It's going to be history, liberty, and laughs. And you go to BrianKilme.com for tickets, especially if you're in the area and listening to one of our affiliates, you're listening online, happen to be there. Uh, it's a show that everybody says is better than Hamilton and almost as good as Cats. Uh, it'll be great. Also, VIP opportunities where I get a chance to talk about talk to you about what's happening at Fox, what's happening here and everywhere else. Uh, it's also co-sponsored by Fox Nation. So go to BrianKilme.com and I'll see you there. And don't forget, get the podcast anytime, anywhere. Brian Kilmeade here. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.